Welcome to Voices Untold, the podcast where we discuss and lay bare the ugly truths of human trafficking. My name is Iman. I'm Justin. I'm Ali. Our main story is the discovery of 39 bodies in a lorry container in Essex. The vehicle, which is thought to have crossed the English Channel from Zeebrugge in Belgium to the port of Tilbury in Essex, was apparently being driven by a 25-year-old man from Northern Ireland who has been arrested on suspicion of murder. Police say that identifying the victims is the first priority, but they say it is likely to be a lengthy process. Hi, now that you've watched this intro clip on the Essex launch deaths, let's talk about it. So on the 23rd of October in Grace, Essex, 39 Vietnamese migrants were found dead in the back of a refrigerated lorry. One of the surprising things that I found about it on the initial portrayal by media is the fact that they label them as all Chinese immigrants. Thoughts? Well, that's actually an interesting point, which we might see more of as we discuss more of the story. It's the idea that these people are kind of faceless, aren't they? I mean, why should it really matter what we label them if there's no one to advocate for them? And, of course, this is almost a benign example compared to the horrible ordeal that they had to go through, um, this mislabeling. But this kind of idea of, of, of faceless people being the victims of human trafficking, I think we'll see that come up more uh, as we talk more today. So that's what that's what I think about this mislabeling. Yeah, um, one one of the things that I've actually found while while researching this topic is is a lot of people who've been trafficked they feel like they they can't go back because nobody back home knows them, especially people who've been trafficked at a young age. They're quite literally faceless. No one knows them. No one would recognize them, and that's actually a pretty pretty horrendous uh, truth about the matter if you think about it. Hmm. Only agree with that statement. So for the first two minutes of this podcast, we've been blabbing on about human trafficking, but we've actually failed to define it. So let me just rectify that situation quickly. So human trafficking involves recruitment, harboring, or transporting people into a situation of exploitation through the use of violence, deception, coercion, and forced work against their will. No, in other words, basically, trafficking is a process of enslaving people, coercing them into a situation with no way out, and exploiting them. I think a good point to make at this juncture uh, regarding trafficking is to make the distinction between trafficking and smuggling. Trafficking, the, the, the typical distinction involves the fact that those who are smuggled, they can sometimes go um, uh, of their own volition, but trafficking happens uh, against the will of the people or against the, against the informed will um, because often, as we'll see later, trafficking situations involve a lot of deception. But the idea with trafficking is that it is not a situation in which if they were informed of all the details, they would want to be in. Trafficking is, in that sense, wholly a bad thing. Yeah, especially in a case like this. I mean, um, we're pretty sure that uh, the people who were smuggled across the border were, in fact, going willingly, especially in, in the Essex lorry. But the, the truth of the matter is a lot of um, human trafficking victims aren't actually told about the circumstances they'll be traveling in, and they're misled with false promises, which um, we're pretty sure is kind of what happened in this case. So... Before we progress any further, uh, let's quickly give an overview of what we'll talk about today. We'll begin uh, first with providing context for the background of the human trafficking scene in Vietnam. We'll, we'll discuss uh, some of the situation. Uh, following that, we'll talk about the leading factors that result in victims being involved in the human trafficking situation. Uh, following that, we'll talk more about the techniques that human traffickers use to coerce their victims into, into both leaving with them and, and staying in their, in their uh, enslavement. Uh, 
After that, we'll talk about some case studies. Here we'll focus on the effects of human trafficking on its victims um, from these case studies. And finally, today, we will have a discussion on how this cycle can be broken. And this part of the podcast will include an interview with our special guest, uh, Michael Brosowski, who is the founder of the Blue Dragon Children's Foundation. Alright, so on to the context. In 2018, Vietnamese authorities reported identifying 419 victims of trafficking. Now, this is quite surprising. They reported 670 in 2017 and 1,128 in 2016. This seems to imply that there's some form of irregularity with the way that they classify these cases. Your thoughts? Well, I think the first thing to, import, uh, to remember about any statistics about the situation are that it is very, very difficult to report accurate numbers on anything that's going on. And part of the reason for that is because a lot of human trafficking, while it's obviously criminal activity, and it's happening under oversight, everything is being done illegally. And of course, there's no good record keeping. And with many of the victims coming from rural areas without effective census, um, census taking measures, it's quite hard to, to have any sort of basis for estimation of numbers. So I think we need to think about that before we speculate on the meaning of any numbers. If we actually do want to obtain um, data for this, uh, probably the best way to do it will be to see like the amount of people that have come to like organizations like Blue Dragon for help because I'm pretty sure that is pro- probably the only accurate way because all data that we get from government about this is uh, at best could be considered an accurate prediction. Even that is fraught with issues though because uh, if we think about what percentage of people are able to find some way to contact any help at all, that is not most of the people who are in these situations. It is not easy for them to find any way of escaping. Agreed. On an additional note, many officials tend to conflate trafficking with smuggling, which, is, which makes great difficulty identifying victims you know, who voluntarily migrated abroad. So there's some disparity in the numbers here. So the source of these numbers comes from five provinces in Vietnam, mostly. Um, it's Nguyen, Ha Tin, Quang Binh, Haiphong, and Quang Ninh. These five provinces in Vietnam are where most human trafficking victims originate. These are rural areas marked by seemingly idyllic coastal towns and mountain ranges, their beauty belying the grim reality of labor trafficking that takes place from within. All of these places have had a history of labor exportation dating back all the way to Vietnam's partnership with the Eastern Bloc during the Cold War era. And the rampant poverty that still exists in these areas exposed their populations to exploitation. Yeah, so uh, adding on to that, uh, poverty is actually one of the greatest factors that leads to human trafficking. And in a sense, you might not expect them first glance because I'm pretty sure a lot of people, when they picture human trafficking, they picture kidnapping and the like. But what happens, especially in Vietnam, because of the super family-centric, responsibility-centric culture, is a lot of people feel pressured to get jobs and to bring in money for their family. And, and when they can't, they're led to make some desperate decisions, like uh, going with some smugglers to try and get them a job in, say, the EU. You know, many people might be surprised by that because according to statistics provided by the World Bank, Vietnam's shift from a centrally planned economy to the market economy has been enormously successful for their GDP and PPI per capita. Vietnam is now considered one of the most dynamic emerging countries in the East Asia region. However, there is a very important note to be made here, the difference between urban and rural development. While urban centers have been brought forward into the, the modern market, Many rural areas are unable to. They've been basically left isolated with no access to education, main roads to provide goods in the market. Yeah. One statistic that 
uh, lend some credence to this is the fact that 80% of school-age children uh, are studying, and of the 20% that aren't, a huge portion of those is made up of uh, students from rural areas. And once again, it's the distinction between the uh, rural development and development in more urban areas. And uh, of course, this is a key uh, mark of countries in transition from centrally planned economies to private economies. Uh, we see these mass uh, shocks and we see huge inequality that occurs uh, as a result of this. Another thing with emerging markets is that it doesn't only create poverty in rural areas, it also creates a lot of misinformation. And this is actually one of the key things that does impact human trafficking. Yeah. Based on this, I would like to bring in some terminology that we can use to frame this discussion. So while we were talking about a bunch of individual factors that causes the situation in the first place, I think one umbrella term that is essential to our understanding of all of them is the idea of vulnerability. You know, the definition provided in international law according to the Palermo Protocol is any situation in which the person involved has no real and acceptable alternative but to submit to the abuse involved. In the case of economic matters, I think this will fall under the branch of circumstantial vulnerability, which is again linked to the person's current circumstance, you know, economy and access to infrastructure and healthcare. Well, let's take a deeper dive into the vulnerability um, that many victims of human trafficking or potential victims uh, have, because I don't know if it's clear to clear to everyone just how, how deep these run. So uh, let's take a look at the ones we've already mentioned. Uh, earlier, we mentioned the idea of social vulnerability in the sense that it's culturally um, an expectation for Vietnamese people to provide for their family. Now this uh, traces its origins back to the uh, Confucianism, Buddhism, uh, and as well as uh, some communist values uh, coming from Vietnam's uh, religious and political history. In some sense, uh, Vietnamese people are born with the expectation that it is their duty to serve their families and by proxy their countries. And uh, because of this, values of sacrifice are imbued in them, meaning that when they're put in situations of human trafficking, they're less likely to see the issue in the see the issue in abuse. They see the abuse as part of their sacrifice for providing for their family. In in a sick sort of way, it's almost an honor. Alright, now let's talk about the poverty cycle. So picture this. You have a couple with two children living on a farm. Now, they're not engaged in farming for sheer profit. In fact, they're engaged in subsistence farming. This is where they produce just enough to live on their own land and to survive. This means they have no money to send their children to any form of education. But since they have no money to send their children for education, their children tend to have a lack of job opportunities, especially in rural areas where they're already highly contested. As such, they tend to have a poor income and that leads into more poor families. Um, so that's not actually that big of a problem if no unexpected expenses occurred. I mean, it's not the most comfortable situation, but at least it's livable and there are no human rights violations going on. The main problems occur when somebody in your family gets sick or maybe your farm gets flooded. Any, any of these things can pile a lot of debt on a family that's just barely making by um, on a day-to-day -day basis. When this happens, usually uh, a, a lot of people turn to human trafficking. Uh, one case study of this, which I found while researching, uh, was from This Week in Asia. Uh, there was a family of three, uh, a mom, a dad, and a child. And essentially what happened was the dad fell sick with a pretty bad illness. 
and the, the mom had to somehow find money to pay for his procedure. In the end, the dad actually died and the mom and the child were stuck without a house and they were just debt ridden. So they eventually got themselves smuggled over the border to EU uh, because they needed to manage to pay off their debt. That is a pretty harrowing example of the poverty that uh, many victims of human trafficking face and can provide some of the reason why uh, it seems viable that they would put themselves in, in situations of human trafficking. But on the big scale, uh, Vietnam also relies quite heavily on remittance and, and uh, remittance of workers to uh, foreign countries, especially to Europe. Uh, once again, this is a relic of uh, Vietnam's historical partnership with bloc countries, um, and therefore Vietnam continues to encourage migration of workers to Europe because of a lack of reliable job opportunities domestically. And of course this means that there are a huge number of labor agencies in Vietnam that are responsible for this. Of course, the larger the number of agencies, the less oversight can, that can be effectively uh, used to handle them. And this is where we get uh, sort of the, the line that crosses into the area of human trafficking. We have uh, various agencies, some less ethical than others, and that is kind of how human traffickers are allowed to seep in and take on victims who are looking for job opportunities uh, foreign uh, in Europe and convince them to take some opportunities that are really deceptive and in so doing trap them in uh, cases of slavery. In fact, I actually have a case study of this. So in an article published by Al Jazeera in 2016, they sent a group of journalists undercover to try and uncover what this whole process looked like. So. These underground journalists posed as a young couple who wanted to work in the UK and met a trafficker in Vincity. This trafficker calmly assured them that she could arrange for the pair to go to England for a kind sum of $32,000. The trafficker in Vincity told these undercover reporters that her contacts would arrange for not transport not directly through the UK but through an intermediary from Hanoi to Russia where they would have to pretend to be foreign students or join a tour group. And I feel at this point there's already endemic signs of suspicion that should be arise when one looks at these opportunities. However, we do have to remember that the situation that these people are coming out of is one of desperation. They have no opportunities on a local basis. This is a seeming golden apple for them in a you know a sea of poverty and I wouldn't fault them for taking off taking it out. So this is an example of, uh, as was stated earlier, uh, desperation uh, outweighing the kind of less than trustworthy nature of the, of the scenario. But think about it, right? If you were in a situation where you were that desperate for money, perhaps like in the earlier case study, your mother is sick or your father is sick, if you were that desperate, uh, and if every labor agency around kind of presented the same offer, how could you tell which ones were legitimate and which ones weren't? Uh, it's it's impossible to look at what's deceiving and not or or what's actually truthful, especially if uh, you've lived a rural life and you don't kind of understand a lot of the background information uh, behind these places. Uh, we know that a lot of uh, another vulnerability that a lot of uh, people are susceptible to is uh, the fact that they're not very well informed about Europe. For many Vietnamese people, they've heard stories from their relatives of great opportunities of working. Uh, the Vietnamese di diaspora in Europe has afforded many the opportunity to build and uh, build their lives there uh, on the economic basis of the EU. So, of course, 
any opportunity to travel to Europe at high cost to themselves, uh, whether financially or in the form of or in the form of abuse from, from human trafficking, is potentially worth it uh, for that gain. Uh, a French study conducted in 2017 uh, interviewed a group of Vietnamese about how much they thought a bowl of pho would actually cost in the EU. Most of them estimated two to three euros, while the actual amount was closer to eight to ten. This just goes to show one of the ways that uh, human traffickers can exploit these people because they don't actually know what it's going to be like there. So whatever the human traffickers say, they have to accept it. So to expand upon the ideas brought about by Justin earlier, it is not a faceless labor organization that recruits these people in the first place. Unfortunately, many job offers are from their close friends or families who have been offered high economic in- in- incentives to refer people to their cause. And another surprising fact that I discovered earlier was that according to a study published by Nielsen, a local smartphone producer, 84% of the total populace own a mobile device with cheap access to data. As a consequence, these labor organizations now have a second front they can employ in the recruitment of these workers, namely social media. The anonymity afforded to trafficker by using social media is highly desirable in their line of work. After all, you know, doing it on a person-person, human-to-human level entails a certain level of risk. After all, traffickers operate for the fear, for the pure profit out of business. They want to take measures to minimize risk whenever possible. Additionally, online, it is quite easy to cultivate relationships with multiple people at one time, take on multiple personas, and do whatever is necessary in order to get the most recruits. Both in person and through social media. The key thing uh, that traffickers exploit is the idea of relationship building with their victims. Uh, Once again, Vietnam, uh, with its Confucian past, uh, has very strong traditions of family love and friend love and and things like filial piety. So the relationship between a person with their their friends, with their relatives, is very important. And there's an implicit trust in there, uh, especially, uh, once again, for the victims in more rural areas who already live in such close, tight-knit communities, um, meaning that anyone who they perceive as a friend, they are willing to trust them almost implicitly, without any doubt, uh, making them very, very vulnerable to the exploitations of, of traffickers. So, uh, speaking of social media and its use by human traffickers to pull in its victims, it's at this juncture that we would like to talk more about some of the techniques that human traffickers use to trap their victims. Right, so a primary technique that these traffickers use to trap their victims is the idea of debt, of debt bondage. So, firstly, you already have the upfront cost of traveling to Europe, which ranges around from 10,000 USD to 40,000 USD. Now, for someone trapped in a vicious cycle of poverty, this is no easy sum to procure. So, typically, they follow one of two avenues. They take out loans from the employers themselves, allowing them to be financially indebted. This indenture also extends out to the community, as many in the community want to support this one adult or child that has the opportunity to travel out and bring money back into the community. Another way that these traffickers take advantage of the desperate situations that these people find themselves in is by giving up family property as collateral. This means if the victim attempts to run away or escape or rat out the traffickers to the police, they often put the lives of their very families on the line. What's important to note about these techniques is that they're very much targeted. These traffickers 
they know what they're doing by targeting people with, with such important things, with the idea that the entire village is behind them and has put, has put up the money for them and in so doing have kind of risked their own livelihoods. The, the idea that their family homes are um, put on as collateral. These, these are very damaging uh, uh, ways of trapping their victims. It's not just the idea of money, it's more than that. It's, it's social. It's, they lose their standing in their communities. They lose their standing with their families if they don't go through with it. And so they stay there and they take the abuse of human trafficking. Those victims of human trafficking, when uh, outside of their own country, they really have no one to turn to. They are alone in every sense of the word. This can be um, especially exemplified when human traffickers, especially those who are more malicious, uh, who have more malicious intent, isolate the people. Like They take the human trafficking victims and don't let them step outside the compound. Uh, if people try and escape, they might threaten them with uh, punishments, uh, like worse, like moving them to worse jobs. They might even just simply kill them. In fact, the one of one of the most shocking case studies I came up with um, while I was researching for this was uh, about a mom uh, and a, a kid who got trafficked um, to EU, and the mother tried to help the kid escape, and uh, the human traffickers they took out her organs as punishment. Most people are promised like decent working hours when they move there and a lot of income, but to to be frank, that's not true. Um, people people who go to the EU for, to work as a illegal workers, they have to take the lowest jobs and they, they're, at total, they're totally at the um, mercy of the, of the people who traffic them there. Right now that we've got our fundamental basis covered, let's move on to talk about how these migrants actually move from Vietnam to Europe. So another means by which these traffickers control the movements of their trafficked laborers is through the withholdment of their travel documents. So this, you know, includes their passport, identity card, or anything else that might make them recognizable on a state level. In doing so, this means that if these workers were to be caught, let's say, by British officials trying to enter, instead of being treated as exploited poor laborers, you know, like taken advantage of by their employers, they would be treated as migrant workers who sought to take advantage of the fact that the Schengen Zone exists and move into Europe without proper documentation. Once again, this cuts off the avenue of the authorities as a place to turn to. Why turn to the authorities when you yourself are a criminal? And with, with all these techniques, human traffickers control every facet of the lives of their victims. They control their money, they control their ability to travel, and of course, through that they inspire with, with their harsh punishments, they control the ability uh, of many victims to even think about escaping from their situation. And it is with this control that uh, many human traffickers perpetrate their horrendous trade. The techniques that human traffickers use to lure their victims in are hideous, but the techniques they actually use to transport the victims of human trafficking are even more inhumane. Most people who pay to get smuggled across the border, uh, they, they usually pay for the lowest possible amount of money to do it, and that usually results them being put in to, uh, to a lorry cab and just being like in a lorry cabin just being moved across roads for hours on end without being able to get out for fear of being spotted. This lowest level is nicknamed the air class or more cynically CO2, a reference to the lack of air in some, tra in some trailers according to BBC. In fact, 
uh, it is widely suspected that the excess lorry deaths was because of the suffocation of everybody in the back in the back of the lorry because of the inhumane uh, conditions that they have to travel in. The idea of these classes is utterly sickening to any moral person. What this shows, more than anything that we've we we've been coming back to time and time again in this podcast, it's the idea that to the traffickers, these are faceless, these are nameless, these are but cattle to be moved. They're not people, they're product. They're, they're product to be moved. They're in the business of selling laborers. They don't see them as people. This is perhaps the most insidious undercurrent of thought that holds up the entirety of this horrendous, horrendous trade. In a similar vein, traffickers work to ensure that their operations are detected. They can't just lump these people onto a flight straight to Britain and call it a day. Instead, they t- often transition through Russia into the Eastern European countries where they can then take advantage of the Schengen zone to reach France and typically take a train or ferry to Britain. However, with so many border checks in place, one would expect that, you know, with this lack of, ex- with this lack of documentation and obvious exploitation of adults or children, they would be caught by local government officials. Looking at this, what I found in my research is that many traffickers are actually quite organized and they have uh, groups in each country, each specializing in, in one part of the operation. They take uh, each part and they handle the logistics. Uh, with a business this profitable, it would make sense that the traffickers are in there to uh, uh, evade legal justice. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what kind of makes uh, human trafficking, especially this type, so scary. It's because there are so many people who willingly who willingly do this, and so many more people who are unwillingly helping out human traffickers on a daily basis. And most, most of the population won't even know about it. Most of the population won't even see the thousands of people that are getting trafficked every year. And this brings us on to the next problem, the seeming disorganization of government efforts to tackle this issue. So I've prepared a case study of the protected Dutch shelters at Jane and Zona. So, you know, in the Netherlands, there is a process wherein they vet unaccompanied and underage asylum seekers to determine if they are at risk of trafficking. If, this, if they are determined to be at risk of trafficking, they are sent to one of these, you know, two aforementioned protected shelters. These shelters are run by the Central Agency for the Reception of Asylum Seekers, the COA. However, I've discovered this fairly alarming quote by Johan van der Heer, leader of the COA, which states that the miners disappear no matter what we do. In fact, it seems that the traffickers are taking advantage of these government institutions to simply use these centers as staging grounds, telling their victims to escape at any cost, with many of them actually waiting outside in cars to help facilitate this. My thoughts? Once again, it's quite hard for governments to strike a balance um, with so many cases and uh, the groups trafficking them being so well organized. It's quite a, it's quite difficult for bureaucracy, especially when they're pelted with thousands of cases, to tell who are the legitimate migrants and who are the trafficked victims. It's it's almost impossible with with language barrier, with the number of cases. It might be asking too much to expect governments to be able to take this type of responsibility, even though they should. Recently, because of the Essex lorry incident, the Vietnamese Ministry of Foreign Affairs has, uh, quote-unquote, called on countries around the world to step up cooperation to combat this crime. The thing is, um, I think in my research, I found that 
the effort from other countries has been sadly lackluster. I'm pretty sure Angela Merkel, uh, Prime Minister of Germany, has dedicated some money to it, but the task force that was meant to, to solve this problem is still underfunded and under-resourced. So throughout the entirety of this podcast, we've taken a look at this issue in a fairly negative manner in order to move the discussion towards how we can break the cycle of human trafficking and exploitation in Vietnam. We've invited Michael Brzozowski, the head and founder of Blue Dragons Children's Foundation. So let's begin with asking you a bit about your organization. While we two are fairly intimately familiar with what you do at Blue Dragon, could you provide us with a 30-second summary of what you actually do? Sure. In simple terms, we rescue kids in crisis. And that crisis might be homelessness or living in extreme poverty, but it may also be living in slavery. Uh, and, And so we rescue young people who have been enslaved and we get them home, help them to heal. We know that there's a lot that goes into this. It's not a singular or very simple process. Talk us through some of your initiatives, some of your projects that you've been pursuing in order to achieve this goal. We dream that we could one day see the end of human trafficking in Vietnam. That's an ambitious goal. And we're not kidding ourselves that that's going to happen quickly or maybe not even in my lifetime. But we have to start working somewhere to to get to that. Uh, To do that, we start on the ground level, we we look for for people who are in slavery. We receive calls for help. We we send people to get them home, uh, and then we carry on working with them um, and, until they've healed, until they've returned to to school or, or education or jobs. Uh, and we also have to make sure that their traffickers are prosecuted and imprisoned. Now, while we're doing that, we also have an opportunity to look at the legal framework in Vietnam and see how can that be improved? How could police be better trained? How could the laws be improved so that trafficking is more difficult and getting people home uh, and and into safety is easier? So piece by piece, we work on all those different parts. So I understand that every rescue is a unique operation and you really have to work with, be flexible with the situation. But talk us through what the general process is, you know, after receiving a call, to, you know, eventually helping to rescue that person? The first thing that we have to do is work out where is this person. They're usually they're, they're girls or, or young women, although sometimes they, they might be middle-aged women, they might be in their 40s and 50s. They may have been in China for a few days or for many years. So depending on all of that uh, may impact um, on, on their level of knowledge, if they even know where they are. Our first activity is to find out where in China is this person calling us from. We may be able to use information from uh, from their mobile telephone if they're using one um, to identify their location. We may need them to take photographs outside the window to sh- to show street signs or uh, to show something about their locality, uh, or they might know roughly where they are. We will then work out how do we get to them, do we, do we send a team, do we go ourselves, can we, can we liaise with the Chinese police on this, um, we'll find them, help them to escape, so it's a non-confrontational approach that we take of, of helping them run away from where they are, not combating the trafficker, not fighting with somebody, uh, and then we'll get them back to the border between the two countries uh, and report to the Chinese police, then hand over to the Vietnamese police, 
return to Vietnam and get them to, uh, to a safe house where they'll recover. Long term, we know that we and NGOs are not the solution to this. We, we have an important part to play, but it's ultimately the governments of Vietnam and China that will most effectively deal with this. So we're continuing uh, for the long term to do this rescue work and to do this rehabilitation work. But uh, over the coming two years, we'll be working closely with the Vietnamese government on several law reform initiatives that will make the legal framework for the country stronger and more adaptive to uh, support people who've been trafficked and also to prevent human trafficking. Um, while we do that, over, I guess we're looking over a period of about five years, we're, we're trying to understand what is it that we do that works. Now, this is a very interesting question. If you get onto Google and, and just put in the question, how to end human trafficking, there's precious little information there. For all of the work being done around the world, not many people have a clear answer. So we think we have some answers. We think that keeping children in school reduces the chance that they'll be trafficked. We think that giving women loans to start businesses and supporting them to, to develop uh, a, a, you know, a, some kind of income stream, we believe that that reduces the chance that they will be trafficked. But can we prove it? And, and can we find what is most effective? So I'm sure that many of our viewers are deeply impacted by the issue, but you know, realistically, you know, with us being you know in Singapore and not in let's say Vietnam or China, what can we do as individuals to try and you know help with this issue as a whole? There are there are two things really that that always come to mind. One is, of course, for the work that we do, we need funding, and there are other organisations out there like us who are, who are doing this work, uh, but but need to know that we can keep doing it. Uh, so we, we do ask people, consider a donation, and, and if you're in a position to do so, can you look at doing something su sustainably, like having a partnership with, with an organisation like Blue Dragon, where some of your profits each year are going to, to support this kind of work? This is a long-term problem. We're not going to fix it next year. Um, we, we need that support into the future. That's the first thing. The second thing is to keep, keep your knowledge, keep your understanding uh, up to date with what's happening. This is a constantly evolving crime. Um, and having more people understand uh, the, the situation will, will make sure the right attention gets drawn, gets drawn to it. Um, that will drive your, your purchasing decisions, your travel decisions even your political decisions in, in the future. Um, young people today can impact human trafficking and, and slavery by the purchasing decisions that they make. Um, not so much in the sex industry, of course, but from day to day when you're out shopping, the clothes that you buy, for example, the shoes, the, 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 the school bag that you buy, um, can you be sure that, that that product was made without slavery in the supply chain. Um, now, in reality, no company can 100% guarantee 
that there is absolutely no slavery in the supply chain. It, but what they can do is make sure that they have checks in place at, a, as a, a, at many points along the, along the way. Um, and you can find out if they're doing that or not. All of that information is online. If you're not sure that your uh, company is doing the right thing, send them a message on Facebook, send them a tweet. Um, they'll respond. Uh, so they are some real actions that anybody can take anywhere in the world. Going back to your question earlier about you know what people can do, I think all of us can find something that we can do. Uh, and, and if everyone plays a part, then we have a chance of defeating human trafficking once and for all. You mentioned earlier the importance of story mm. and the importance of the human narrative, the human angle, um, in when raising awareness about human trafficking issues. Is, is there any example uh, of a story of someone who kind of has been through the entire Blue Dragon journey in the context of an actual person uh, sure. receiving that aid? In, in fact, maybe the, the very best uh, example to, to share is, is the very first person who we rescued from human trafficking. Um, he was a boy, um, and he was 13 years old at the time that, that I met him. Uh, so his name is Mok, and, and he'd grown up in, in a really rural part of Vietnam, sort of by the beach. His, his parents had never been to school. Uh, he had never been to school. So the entire family was, was illiterate. And they lived on a tin shack, on, literally on sand. And it's, this is in a typhoon area. So at least twice a year, their home would be destroyed and they'd start again. They'd just put it back together. So when these traffickers came uh, and, and targeted his family, it was very easy for his family to think, look, this might be better for him to, to go and, and work in a, in a shop, which is what they thought was going to happen, um, than, than that he stay with, with us. They really saw that this, this might be a chance to change their lives. So they let their son go, and he was taken to Ho Chi Minh City in the south of Vietnam, uh, where instead of working in a shop, which is what they'd been told, he was put to work on the streets selling flowers and he would work 12, 16, 18 hours a day until all of the flowers were sold. Um, he was walking around the, like the tourist part of the city um, starting late afternoon right through to, to the next morning. Um, so when I, when I met Nock, he, he immediately wanted to get out of that situation. And, and I was able to, to, to do that, to help him to get home. Um, but once he was home, we could see, look, there's just nothing at his home for him. He's 13 and he hasn't started grade one yet. There's no school around here that would accept him. But in Hanoi, where Blue Dragon is based, uh, we, were, we were able to, to get him enrolled in a school. So he learned to read and write. And after a few years, he went off to work in, uh, in a restaurant. And he lived with us. Through, through most of this until he was earning an income and, and then he went and uh, was living on his own. But after maybe five years of that, he came back to us and he said, look, um, I'll, I'll always remember what, what you did for me. You turned my life around. I'd like to work for Blue Dragon. I want to come back and, and be part of this. So we employed Nock and he still works for us now. He's back in his village and his job is going around his district where 
where children are at risk of trafficking. And he works with families and with schools to teach people about how to stay safe. If ever he comes across cases of missing children, he works with us to, to find out where they are. And, and so, you know, he's gone from being someone who was desperate for help to someone who can now help others. I think what Michael is saying is extremely important and something we want all listeners to take away. Throughout this podcast, we've dived deep into the various factors that cause human trafficking, analyzing complex push and pull factors at play, the terrible techniques used by traffickers and the horrible methods of transportation that lead to stories such as the XX lorry deaths. You may feel overwhelmed. How can I place a part in combating such a large complex issue? Well, we all have to start somewhere. Michael himself started with rescuing just one kid, which has now resulted in an organization which to date has saved the lives of 50,000 individuals. The actions he has listed, supporting Blue Dragon and other similar organizations and staying up to date on the issue so that you don't unknowingly contribute to human trafficking are great first steps. Thank you for listening and catch us on the next episode of The Voice Untold.